Oh
separate ways into different classes, Lord, that your spirit would go with us, that you would anoint each one that's teaching tonight, God, that your word would go forth, that it would fall on fertile hearts, Lord, that it would sink deep, God, to produce good fruit for your kingdom. We give you all the praise and all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Youth and children, you are dismissed. Those that are staying in the sanctuary, go ahead and turn in your word to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. The Lord knows when we need a good laugh, right? When Dennis throws his drumstick down and <laughs> just kind of, it's good to laugh. Laughter's a good medicine, right? And Sawyer's like his mama, bless his heart. He gets his tickle box turned over, and he just can't stop. So uh, but that's all right. It's good to laugh. The Lord knows how to keep us humble. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So Mark chapter 14 tonight will be in verses 43 through 52. And as we get ready to read our text, which is very climactic, I would say, um, to say the least, I really hope that we can focus in on things that maybe in the past times of reading uh, we just kind of skimmed over. Again, I want to remind you that the Word of God is living and it grows with us. It grows as we grow. So tonight, I pray.
pray that you're in a place that you weren't in before and uh and that as we read this text tonight that this word is going to grow in you uh and it's just going to challenge you and bless your heart so my heart uh in praying this uh preparing for this message tonight was for the lord to give us insight and fresh uh, revelation of his word to show us and teach us things that we've never known before for his glory. Amen. And I, I pray that that's your heart. Uh, make it be your heart tonight. So let's go ahead and begin reading Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. And immediately, while he yet spoke, comes Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he who betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he went straightway to him and said, Master, Master, and, killed, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them who stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was with you in the temple teaching. I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. I want you to notice, first of all, that Mark uh, is again in verse 43, using the word immediately. We've heard this word a lot uh, over the past year and a half in studying the book of Mark. Uh, he actually uh, uses this word 42 times in the writing of the gospel compared to Matthew only using it five times and Luke only used the word once. But Mark wanted us to be right there and I thought it was just so the Lord how when Paris ministered on Sunday, I think that was Sunday, or was it Saturday night, that he ministered and, and referenced Mark uh, so much. And I was like, man, we've been right there. We know exactly what you're talking about. And giving a little more detail to Mark's um, personality and, and the way that he writes, he wants us to be as if we're right there in the middle of it, kind of like a sports commentator giving a play-by-play -play of what's going on. And so he uses these words um, to show us uh, how quickly things were moving at this point, right? Things were moving very quickly. And uh, wh why should that matter? What, what does that prove? Well, it proves how scandalous this whole event, the arrest of Jesus, actually is. And, and we're going to get into that more next week when we talk about the trial. But actually, 22 laws were broken in the arrest of Jesus, 22 laws, and I found that fascinating in studying uh, and preparing. When you think about the entire arrest and trial all took place within a 24-hour span, that's amazing, right? It's amazing. That never happens. That's unheard of. And 22 laws were broken. Uh, when someone is doing something wrong, think about it, like robbing a house or stealing a car. Uh, they don't take their time right? They do it with a sense of urgency. 
before they get caught. And that's exactly what we see taking place in the arrest, and then you'll see through the trial of Jesus. They wanted to hurry this process through, right? Uh, th that's how the enemy works. He wants to just take you out uh, with everything that he has. I also want to bring out how little the Lord's enemies understood the nature of his kingdom, right? Here again, totally misunderstood. It says that Judas came to take him with a great multitude with swords and staves, and staves is just another word for clubs, right? Some say that there were as many as 600 to 1,000 soldiers that came to arrest Jesus. Nothing brings people together like a good appetite for hate and evil, right? I mean, you watch these movies and sometimes even cartoons when they gather together mobs, and they have torches, and everybody's saying all the stuff that really didn't even happen, but it gets the crowd riled up, and, and they're all just ready to destroy something, to hurt somebody, right? And that's exactly what we see happening here. And maybe they thought that the 11 disciples would fight them, right? Or that Jesus would put up a fight. But even if that had been the case, it was still 1,000 to twelve. So do you really, I just want you to get a picture of this. And again, this is how Mark writes, very descriptive, wants us to understand exactly what was going on. I can't help but think that deep down inside of each and every one of those soldiers, they knew exactly who they were coming up against. And they knew the power that Jesus possessed. See, these members of the Sanhedrin, the temple police, the Roman soldiers, they were both Jews and Gentiles, again, the two groups that would have never come together ordinarily have now joined forces to take Jesus out. They all had, at one time or another over the past three and a half years, witnessed the power of Jesus in word and in deed. They knew who they were coming to, right? You have to know it was on their minds, but again, clearly they didn't understand Jesus and his ministry, John 18 and 36. And I want to turn there because I want to read the notes here in my Bible. So John 18 and 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. In no way denies his kingship, but does claim that the origin of his kingdom and kingship are not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews? In essence, says that if he was what the Jews claimed him to be, a usurper over Rome, his followers would have long since been incited to use force. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Now it's not of this world, but in the future it will be. Right? They didn't even realize, again, why Jesus came to the earth. And I want to just say it, remind you, he came to die on the cross for you and for me. That's why he came. That was his mission. That's, that's what he came for. We need to remember this in our efforts um, and even spreading the gospel, right? Uh, that it's not to be brought about through violence. We're not to attempt to spread the gospel 
through violence or by the arm of the flesh. Second Corinthians 10 and 4 says, For we wrestle, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Zechariah 4 and 6 says, Not by power, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Right? J.C. Ryle said it best. He said, The cause of truth does not need force to maintain it. And I want to say that again. The cause of truth does not need force to maintain it. Why? Because the truth can stand alone. The word of God can stand alone. It does not need you or myself to forcefully or violently go out and do something and thinking that we're spreading the gospel. That's not how it works at all. You see, false religions like Islam, they've been spread by the sword, right? False Christianity like the Roman church has been enforced by bloody persecutions, the Crusades, think of all the blood that was shed, right? But the real gospel of Jesus Christ does not require these things. Why? Because it stands by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit contained within these words. And when we speak these words, the Spirit goes with it. Right? It's not that we have to do something extra or do something special. The word of God alone is anointed. And it stands in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It grows on men's hearts and conscience by the hidden influence of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say that there is no clearer sign of a bad cause in religion than a readiness to appeal to the sword. You see, Exodus uh, 14, 13, we find Moses saying, he said to the people, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today for the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will see them again no more forever. And what that is saying is uh, basically once you come into covenant, into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. It's not that there's not sin out there everywhere you go, everywhere you look, but now it no longer has dominion over you. And that should excite us. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Right? Uh, we've got to continually remind ourselves of that. Verse 44 of Mark chapter 14, verse 44. Uh, and he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely. Now, the kiss was the customary mode of saluting a rabbi. That was not uncommon. But the way in which Judas gave the kiss was very disrespectful because in those days normally the rabbi would have approached the disciple right would have approached um, the student then the kiss would take place not the disciple rushing uh, up to him this is just another sign of how far removed Ju uh, Judas had become 
from the ways of the Lord. How quickly it took place, right? The last part of this verse is absolutely ridiculous when you think about it. Um, when Judah says, take him and lead him away safely. Really? Right? I mean, think about what he's just done. He sold out the Savior, and now he's saying, take him away safely. Commentary says that Judas had seen Jesus walk through hate-filled mobs several times when they were bent on killing him. He had seen him raise the dead and perform miracles of unprecedented proportions. So how did he think they could take him unless he would simply allow them to do so? Right? It's recorded in John this way when Judas and the mob of soldiers approached Jesus. John 18, 4 through 6. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Do you realize at this point how much of the power of God was on Jesus? Right? It was so strong that his very words caused all of them to fall to the ground. Now, this very well could have been up to 500 men. Who knows? That, that actually heard this. But the very words, I am he, caused all of them to fall to the ground. And yet, they think they could have taken him without him just willingly going, right? So there was absolutely no way that they could have taken him unless he allowed them to do so, which he did. And some people said, well, why did they have to do a kiss? Well, because remember, it was at night, and all they had was the light of the torches, and everyone would have probably been dressed in the same manner. The men had the long hair and the beards, and so it easily identified Jesus, right? That was the whole point in that. Verse 45 of Mark 14 says, and as soon as he was come, he goes straightway to him and says, Master, Master, and kissed him. Right here, the deed is done. The ultimate act of betrayal. Betrayed by a kiss, right? That's where we get that. Proverbs 27 and 6 comes to mind when reading this. It says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kiss of an enemy are deceitful. I don't want to spend too much time here tonight, but just think about the personal hurt that Jesus must have felt to have Judas betray him. Judas was handpicked by Jesus to be his disciple, and now this, right? This also proves that one can fall away from the faith. This portion of scripture, more than any other that I know of, is, is so clear that you can fall away from the faith, that you're not saved by association or participation, right? Because Judas was associated. He was with Jesus right by his side for three and a half years. 
There must be a heart-changing work of repentance that takes place in the life, and it must be an ongoing relationship. It's very clear that Judas had an experience with the Lord. Luke wrote in Acts 1 and 25 that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, the foundation of the church, from which Judas by transgression fell, right? That he might go to his own place. Hear me tonight. It's impossible to fall from something that you didn't previously have, right? So he knew the Lord. He was saved. He accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. But then he went his own way and fell. It happens. It's not an easy thing. Hear me tonight. It's not an easy thing to lose your salvation. But it can happen if you continue to go your own way. To go your own, to your own place. To do it your way and reject the ways of the Lord. Verse 46 of chapter 14. And they laid their hands on him and took him. This verse shows a contrast between the actions of Christ and the actions of the hypocrites. Right? See, the hands of Jesus were used to heal the sick. To cast out devils. Not one time did those hands ever minister sickness, suffering, heartache, disappointment, or even failure. His hands always brought blessings, right? But on the contrary, the only time it's recorded that the church of that day used their hands to touch him, it was used for the purpose of hurt and harm. In Matthew 7, 16, Jesus said, You shall know them by their fruits. See, the fruit of Jesus' life was saved souls, changed lives, broken bondages, healed bodies. There was abundant fruit that flowed from Jesus' hands, that flowed from his ministry. But what was their fruit? What was the fruit of the church of that day? No lives were changed. No souls were saved. No bondages were broken. No sick bodies were healed. All they could do was kill. Why? Because their master was Satan who can only steal, kill, and destroy. We know that scripture, John 10 and 10. But Christ came that we would have life and have it more abundantly. We're known by our fruits, right? And that which is not of God has no good fruit. You need to be careful where you put your hands. You need to be careful what you're giving to, what you're lending to. You have to make sure that they're bearing good fruit, fruit that leads to life and not to death, changed lives. And I know I'm giving you a lot of information. I'm just trying to get through this because we're pressed for time. Verse 47 of Mark chapter 14, and one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know Mark doesn't tell us, probably because Mark was fearful, um, but we know the one who stood by was Peter, right? John tells us that. And here again, we find Peter uh, making another mistake. He should have known not to fight that Jesus 
would have gone willingly, that Jesus planned to go willingly, that the gospel had never been about fighting or hurting. And I find it interesting because um, you kn- soldiers in that day trained with the sword so much that they could have drawn it and hit someone even with a helmet on um, with such force that it would have pierced the helmet all the way through their skull, basically split their head in half. And Peter missed by just a little bit and cut off the ear instead of the head. That's just a little side note. I just thought that was, wow, they knew how to use swords. But Peter was not in his right mind, evidently. Um, But by understanding who Jesus was, Uh, Not understanding who Jesus was, Peter fought with the wrong weapon, right? He thought he needed to use a sword. Ephesians 6 and 12 says, For we wrestle not against the flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He was fighting the wrong enemy. He was fighting man. That's not who we wrestle against. Our battle is with the enemy, right? He used the wrong weapon. He should have used the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? The Scripture goes on to say that. He knew that's what Jesus did over and over again. He would, Jesus would say, thus saith the Lord. Think about when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. How did he fight Satan? With the Word of God. Jesus always used the word, and so should we. So should have Peter, but yet he didn't get it. He didn't understand, and there are times in our lives where we're fighting the wrong enemy. We've seen that happen a lot here lately, really since last October. Up until present, people fighting man. Instead of fighting that which is working behind man, Satan. And we have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to fight this battle. We are called to fight one fight, and that is the good fight of faith. We have the only weapon that we need. And when we find ourselves uh, almost resorting to other things, other measures, that should be a red flag wait a minute, I'm missing it. I'm messing up. I'm not, uh, that's not who my battle is with. That's not who my fight is with. And go back to the word. We've got to use the weapon that the Lord gave us. Use it wisely, right? So he used the wrong weapon and he failed. He had the wrong motive. He was still hoping and trying to keep Jesus here just as he did at the transfiguration, remember? We'll build you a tabernacle. You can have one, and and I'll have one. And, you know, he wanted Jesus to stay here. He wanted him to be the conquering king here on the earth, here and now, right? He couldn't believe his master, his savior, really came to die. But he did. Thereby he accomplished the wrong result. Let me remind you tonight that we are to never fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. We are never to fight physical, spiritual battles with physical weapons. It will never work. 
Before we move on to verse 48, I do want to point out that if the authorities had so desired to press charges against Peter, they would, ha would have had great difficulty. Why? Because there no evidence remained. Right? When he cut off the ear of Malchus, we know that was his name. The other gospels tell us that. Why? Because the man's ear was made whole. And I love this. This just like came to life to me. In a way, this is a picture of justification by faith. Because no evidence of sin remains in our lives. Right? Jesus not only forgives, but he cleanses and heals us until no trace remains. So Satan, in his attempt to press charges, finds no evidence. Right? I think about the old uh, Carmen song. And uh, it's where Jesus and Satan, you know, are going back and, and he pulls out the book and Satan says, no, not that book, not that one. And on the front of it, it says the Lamb's Book of Life, right? And he opens up the book and he finds the person's name. He's like, I don't see anything here. There's no record of sin. The blood of Jesus must have worked right? The blood of Jesus has worked. It does work. There's no evidence. There's no trace of sin left in our lives. Satan has no claim, no hold to us any longer because Jesus has made us whole. He's made us whole completely. Even if Peter had gotten the sword right and split Malchus's head completely in two, that head would have been completely put back together. And there would have been no evidence. There would have been no scar, right, left. Why? Because Jesus does things all the way. He does things 100%. There's no evidence left. That excites me tonight that in his eyes, I'm as white as snow. I'm, I have no blemishes, right? I'm declared righteous and holy in him. Verse 48. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? This is Jesus protesting the manner in which these acts are being carried out. Why were they armed when he had never led a rebellion? Right? Why did they come out with all of these weapons when Jesus had never lifted a finger to hurt anybody? All he did was heal all he did was set free. All he did was save. That was it. And yet they come as if he is a thief. Uh, 49. I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Basically, they didn't take him in the temple because they didn't have a legitimate reason to. Uh, Jesus had just been with them three times in the temple in the past few days. But if they had tried to arrest him, there would have been uh, more than likely an insurrection. And when I say that word now, I laugh because that's what it's tied to. <laughs> and in our days, uh, among the people, and that's why they had to do it at night, which again was against the law. It was against their own law to arrest someone after dark, but yet they're doing it. We'll get into that more um, next week. 
But the last part of the scripture, but the scripture must be fulfilled. This, of course, was speaking of the prophecies given to the prophets of old in Isaiah and Zechariah. Now, this is not predestination, but it is foreknowledge, right? Because predestination is not a thing. It does not exist. But God knew, even if he gave people free will, this is what would happen, right? This was just foreknowledge being uh, played out. Verse 50. And they all forsook him and fled. Um, this is one of uh, the saddest scriptures, I believe, uh, in all of the word of God, that they all forsook him and fled. The 11 disciples not being allowed to fight, fled. Right? See, the flesh will fight or flee, but it will not trust. The flesh will fight or flee, but it will not trust. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, and oh, how we need him. I need the Holy Spirit to trust him. I need the Holy Spirit to believe his word. I need the Holy Spirit to, to have peace in these last days, right? If we're trying to rely on, on our flesh or on our ability to fight, we're not going to make it. We need the Holy Spirit. Now all of the disciples left, but Peter and John, to their credit, did follow him to the house of the high priest. But the only reason why they did that, because that was another prophecy being fulfilled, that's where Peter was to deny him, right? This is the beginning of the prophecy of David being fulfilled in Psalm 142 and 4. And it says, I looked on my right hand and behold, but there was no man who would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. No one, not even his disciples, stood up for him. He had healed thousands, but none were there to speak up for him. He had taught tens of thousands, even with the words of life that they themselves would say, we've never heard it preached like this before, right? The excitement that came when they received the word of God, but yet not one was there to speak a kind word of him. Talk about hurt. Talk about betrayal. We think we get our feelings hurt. And that's a bad hurt. It's a real hurt, especially to be hurt by someone who's close to you. But we see just as Jesus did, there's healing of that hurt. You can move past that hurt. And it's a word called forgiveness that Jesus always readily extends. And when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, we should do the same, even to those who hurt us the most. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with them, but you do have to forgive them and move on and not allow them to continue to hurt you because you're the one that ends up being hurt, right? Unforgiveness, we say it all the time. It's like you drinking poison and waiting on the person that hurt you to die. It's not going to happen. Most of the time, they could care less. But when you offer that forgiveness, you're freeing yourself from that person and you're allowing the Lord to heal that hurt, to, to heal that wound. 
Lastly, verses 51 and 52, I'm going to read together. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Amos 2 and 16 says, And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. Wow. Even something as minute as that, the Lord fulfilled. We see that being fulfilled here uh, in the New Testament. See, most believe that this was Mark himself who was the one fleeing naked, leaving the linen cloth behind, running naked from the garden of obedience. And if this was, in fact, Mark, um, all forsook him. That scripture going back said all forsook him. And Mark is putting himself in there saying, and even I did. Even I did, right? Mark was kind of like the writers um, that you know today that like to make a cameo appearance in their movies, right? Steven Spielberg, uh, I read, I didn't realize this, but Alfred Hitchcock did that in all of his movies. He would make a cameo appearance in these. And so Mark put himself here right at the end in his own gospel, in the own, his own writing, saying that, you know, I, I fled the Lord too. I left the Lord too. I ran too. So how does this reflect uh, Jesus' warning about the cost of discipleship? Well, in trying to save himself, the young man loses what little he had, the linen cloth, right? Whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. See, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must love him more than you love your own father. This is kind of recapping all of Mark. You must love him more than your mother, than your wife, than your children, than your brothers and your sisters. Yes, more than your own life. Otherwise, he says, you can't be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after him cannot be his disciple. Who does not forsake all that he has cannot be his disciple. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Tonight, this message and the next few, they're heavy, right? It hurts our hearts to think of all that, that Jesus went through. Again, I want us to, to learn uh, from these disciples that we can't be overconfident in our own strength, right? See, the fear of man does indeed bring a snare. The word, word tells us that. We never know what we may do if we're tempted or to what extent our faith may give way. We need to be clothed with humility because I can almost assure you that we would have been running just like we saw these 11 running. See, when the, when the danger gets real, when the fire gets hot, in and of ourselves, in our flesh, our tendency is to run, to flee, not to stay. We've got to be charitable in our judgment of other Christians, right? 
We can't expect too much from each other. Or we can't set people down, right? Having no grace at all if they happen to fall. We can't forget that even Jesus, the ones that he chose, the apostles, forsook him in his time of need. But be encouraged, they rose again. They rose again in repentance, and they became pillars of the church of Jesus Christ. Had they not, we wouldn't be here today. There's hope. Even if we have found ourselves, even today, smack dab in the middle of failure, we've messed up again. Because see, when you really think about it, we flee from the Lord when we do things our own way instead of doing it his way. That is a fleeing from the Lord. That's a, a turning our back to him. Now, we're not physically turning and running, but spiritually speaking, that's what we're doing. We're going our own way. So tonight as we close and the music plays, I want you to get real with yourself. Allow your heart to be exposed, not to me, not to Jason, but to the Lord. Lord, search me. Know me. Lord, you know where I failed. But Lord, tonight, I'm coming back to you. I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm repenting, Lord. And God, tonight, it's just me and you. See, as Jesus found himself in the garden alone, that's where we have to go. We go to him, just us, right? It's not about anybody else in this room. It's about you and the Lord. And so tonight, for just a moment, won't you let the Holy Spirit search your hearts, bring about healing, bring about forgiveness, right? Restore right relationship between you and him. So if you'll stand, and as the music plays, if you'll just come and spend a moment and let him speak to you.
Lord, we just thank you tonight, God, for continuing to draw our hearts closer and closer to you, Lord. I thank you, God, that you come to where we are, Lord. God, that you left all of heaven, Lord, its glory and its splendor, Lord, to have a relationship with each and every one of us, Lord. I pray that tonight, Lord, that relationships were restored, God, that forgiveness was granted, Lord, that healing came. Lord, that you would continue, Lord, to search us, to know us, God, to lead us in your ways, God, that you would just be with us as we leave tonight, God, that your spirit would go before us, Lord, and that you would bring us back all together, Lord, at the next appointed time. We give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So tonight,